Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. Now, I can tell you something, people. Today is Mick Jagger's 75th birthday, and it's amazing that, you know, back in 1982, I think it was, or 81, I saw him at uh, JFK Stadium in Philadelphia, and it was him, Journey, and the Stones. And it was such an amazing show, I mean, and grazing memories, and I can't believe that after all these years, he still dances like he did back then. I mean, I couldn't dance back then, and now I can dance like maybe one-eighth of back then. But I'm going to tell you about the Stones, and people think about this, and, and just try to figure it out. My three favorite songs, my three favorite Stones songs are probably Gimme Shelter, You Can't Always Get, you, get What You Want, and Do 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 Heartbreaker. So sit there and think about what your three of your favorite songs are. So anyway, we have a great show today. This gentleman is a very, very prolific TV writer, uh, producer, and he's got a show on right now that uh, me and Joanne just crack up. And I wish critics would say that. Like, if a critic would just say the show, it's just funny, you'd watch it. Like, all the times critics sit there and they write this long, long, long stuff, and then, then they go give it thumbs up, thumbs down. If I reviewed my guest's show, I would just say, it's just funny, and you're going to laugh your ass off, and I bet people would watch it. Anyway, my show is Jeff Astroff, and his, his, the, the show is Trial and Error. How you doing, Jeff? I'm fantastic. I'm, I'm now just, I'm, I'm only thinking about uh, my three favorite Rolling Stone songs, but what? You, you picked good ones there. Well, now, what uh, would you I say? can't tell you, almost every interview starts with uh, a reference to Mick Jagger, almost every interview I do, so I'm, I'm glad you kept that up. <laughs> so, so what would you say are three of your favorite songs? What would you, what would you guess? Oh my gosh, it's it's uh, it's so hard to do because it, it's a band where you know like forty of their uh, forty forty of their songs. Um, you know, sympathy for the devil, of course. Um, it's just a shot away. Emotional rescue. I, I don't. It's very difficult for me to. Uh, I, I wasn't prepared for this uh, this conversation, <laughs> but it, it, it probably I could probably name about. Uh, 10 or 12 songs that I would sing along to on the radio and, and like you, uh, would not dance to. Right. <laughs> so, so I, ah, see. so I want to, I want to talk to you about your show, Trial and Error, and, um, you're in your second season and how did you end up co-creating that show? You know, you've written for Friends, you've written for Veronica's Closet, you know, you've written animation, you've written for Angie Tribeca, which the writing is sort of, you know, in the same air as Trial and Error with the with the jokes that they way they are, how did trial and error come about? How did you guys sit there? And, and I know you co-created it with, I believe, Matt Miller. How did that happen? Yeah. How did how did it, how did you? Uh, so that's a, it's a uh, what I think is a, a good story um, because we're on the air. Uh, any story that ends with you're on the air is a good story, no matter what happens. Um, so I about um, you know I've been doing this now for uh, for you know, almost as long as Mick Jagger, for 26 years. And, and if you look at my uh, IMDb page, you'll see that it's almost exclusively multicams. Um, and uh, I wanted to break out of that a little bit just because I was tired of the formula um, a little bit. It's just uh, it wasn't what I was watching. And really what I was watching uh, on TV were crude. And this was like five or six years ago, uh, a, a copy of the DVD of The, the Staircase. Uh, went around writers' rooms, and it shut down work and families for, you know, as it, it spread like a virus around uh, sitcom lots, and it was just, you know, if, if you haven't seen The Staircase, it's it's wonderful, and Netflix actually just picked it up, even though it's a, from 2001, um, and I was watching with my wife, uh, you know, during that time that we binged it, and our kids did not have a hot meal, um, we... I said, you know what, if this starred Steve Carell, this would be the funniest show ever. Because it would be like, it's a guy, it was, the characters were so crazy and the twists and turns were so crazy. It's like, there's nothing I watch now where I'm like, oh my God, I have to watch the next episode. Even when you're a kid, like you wait for MASH or you wait for All in the Family or Cheers um, to come on the next week and you're excited, but it's not like I have to see what happens next. You know what I mean? And this was like, I have to see what happens next. So I was like, you know what? And, and at the time I was developing, as I have been for the last 10 years, you know, and every year I would come up with my own, you know, some other semi-autographical, autobiographical story about a, you know, some asshole guy who's, you know, just trying to get with his wife on his 40th birthday. And, right. and it's just like the stakes are really not there. And I was actually sick of 
my own writing. So I was like, and just writing about myself. And I, so I pitched it to uh, Warner Brothers, the, this, uh, the same women who've been developing Warner Brothers, you know, for as long as I've been there. And I said, I want to do a comedy about a guy uh, who's accused of murdering his wife. And just blank stares. I don't even think they blinked. <laughs> and they said, so you want to do a drama? I said, no, it's a comedy. About a guy who murders his wife. Yes. Uh, like a serialized thing. And they said, we want you to write about your family. So I did that. And every year I'd come back in. And finally, um, kind of, um, I think it was Making a Murderer came out. And that was like a big show. Or maybe it was Serial. And people were listening to Serial. And I said, can I please do a comedic version of this? And they said, okay, first of all, yes, as long as you do another uh, comedy, multi-cam comedy about your life, which... No one gave a shit about, like, except for me and the studio every year. Um, and if you take on, because you've never done this, I hadn't even done single camera before. I worked with my buddy Ira Ungerleiter and Angie Tribeca the year before, and that was it. Then it wasn't like I didn't create the show. I was just kind of, um, I was just kind of there. So I'd never done single camera, and I'd never done procedural. And uh, I honestly wanted to do a mock documentary also because I, I heard that the hours on Modern Family were good. Uh, and really, that, that was the basis. It was just pure laziness. <laughs> and um, so they said, you can only do this if we put you together with a, um, a document, a, a, somebody who has dramatic procedural experience. And I was like, it's crazy like that you're doing this. This is my idea. And I met Matt Miller and we just hit it off like, uh, you know, two peas in, uh, you know, Pico Kosher Deli. We were just like, it was a beautiful relationship from the, from the start. And he was just like really supportive. And he had like, he just had like, I mean, honestly, the only thing I got from Matt, which is not the only thing, was the fact that there aren't, um, you don't start a new scene on a new page. It would have been worth it, uh, you know, from, from multi-camera to single camera. But, you know, he, Matt really... Matt was a good, clear voice for me, and, and he got it, and, you know, he came up with um, a really big part of the show. You know, I, I told the story the other day to a friend of mine, uh, which I don't know if it's apocryphal, and but it's a great story that apparently when uh, Back to School came out, uh, William Goldman did a pass on it, and he got paid $100,000 a day. He just wrote three words on the cover, Make Rodney Rich, <laughs> and it changed everything. And, you know, for me, my Matt's make Rodney Rich moment was he said, let's do a different suspect every year. And I said, that's such a great idea because it's so hard coming up with story. And, you know, uh, that way we could do, you know, we could do a different case every year. And, and that made all the difference in the world. And, and um, so I hooked up with Matt. And then every single step of the way, it was just kind of like, the uh, the no one got it, no one understood it. I sold it by saying it's because uh, it, people only understand what they've seen before. So basically, it was sold as uh, the office in a taxidermy shop. Like that's like honestly, that's how people are. Oh, okay, the office. I get. It. I understand that, and um, it was very difficult for people to give me notes because it was almost we almost created a genre in it, and and it was darker than people expected. And all along the way, the resistance I got was, well, they're not going to do this, they're not going to do this, they're not going to do this, and all of a sudden they did it. And, you know, to this very moment, it's been a blessing and a curse. The blessing has been I got to write something that really cracks me up and work with the best cast I've ever worked with. The curse is that it, it truly is difficult to find a place on the network for this show. And, you know, in the first season, they... I've never been aired with a comedy. Um, I've never been aired as a standalone episode. This season, you know, we're being aired in the summer. It's like they love the show but don't qu quite know what to do with it. And it's been called a cult hit without the hit status yet. Okay. So <laughs> that's, that's what I struggle with. But it's been a wonderful show. You know, it's... It was the only show, I mean, I've been doing this for so long, where at the table read, the note I got from the network was, don't change anything. Um, the only thing they were worried about was uh, Sherry Shepard's uh, facial blindness, that people would, 
write letters. And I said, well, we'll probably send them to the wrong network, so let's right. not worry about that. And that was literally it. I mean, it was not like, I didn't even stay for lunch, you know. And, and I've been blessed that because I have such a strong sense of what the show is, um, it's been very, very easy for me to write. And, um, you know, painstaking. Goes through, and we do nine drafts of every episode and then nine cuts of every of every sh- show after it's filmed. But it's been just, it's been pure blessing for me. Well, you know, it's funny when you said, well, one thing I like is the fact that it is a new case. Because one thing that's always irked me as a TV watcher, and I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a moderate TV watcher. My girlfriend watches a ton of TV. But what all these irks me about some of these shows is you watch a season and it has a cliffhanger and then the show gets canceled. So yep. you're going, what the hell happened? At least yours, we know, it's a brand new case. So we don't have to worry about it. But I think, what do you think about your first season? Because you said, you know, it was, you had to, they put you together with a drama writer. How much, I mean, how much luckier could you be as an amazing, amazing, serious actor, but is so damn funny? I mean, as a writer, for what you're getting at and, you're, you know, what you wanted to do, he must have been, the was he the first choice for you? And it just must be, it's amazing, it was amazing casting. So yes, it was it was amazing. I, I will say this. I will say that it was uh, for sure meant to be John, and nobody would do better at that role. Um, people, it's funny. I watch uh, when when I read when I read like uh, you know online blogs and stuff about the show and and feedback. They talk about how we did an homage to you know Harry and the Hendersons with his last name being Henderson, and. All these other things, uh, all these other like inside things, and how we wrote it for John. John was our the fifth actor we went to, um, and um, he didn't even he didn't even come up like he he didn't even, his name didn't even come up for for you know the first three weeks we were casting it, and not because he's not the greatest comedic slash drama actor who ever lived. I believe he is. It's just that like you know the first. Thought, when I thought of the first, the first time I, I saw, you know, the staircase, I was like Steve Carell, and Steve Carell. So I, I, you know, I worked with him on Angie Tribeca, but he was, you know, he's something about Oscar nominated. He wasn't doing this, um, and uh, the other person I thought of when I thought of a sitcom, I thought of, um, oh, the, the, the other person that the network loved immediately was Kevin Klein. Um, who they refer to in the TV world as Kevin Decline because he doesn't do anything. He doesn't do TV. And um, so we sent him the script waiting for a fast pass. And then the, uh, the next day we get a call from Kevin Klein. And at the time, you know, my assistant, who's no longer my assistant, said, so Kevin Klein, do you want to take this? I'm like, of course we want to take this. And we talked to Kevin Klein for 70 minutes about the show. And I remember Matt and I are hugging each other. Like, he sounded exactly like what we wanted the character to be. He was asking the right questions. He had never done TV, so he's asking questions like almost Austin Powers would ask about television. <laughs> like, right. how do I fit inside that small box in everyone's living room? <laughs> you know, but he, uh, aside from that, and, you know, God bless him. Somebody, he's married to Phoebe Cates, and he still wants to work. I, right. I don't understand it, but... Um, you know, but he said, like, Phoebe and I read this, and, and um, you know, and, and uh, you know, we're intrigued. And he, he, he spoke to us for 70 minutes, and at the end of it, he hung up, and we hugged, and the phone rang, and he called us back for another 13 minutes to pitch something for the characters. Like, I can't stop thinking about it. So we were like, we did it. Like, we got Kevin Klein on TV. It's like a home run. Right. And then uh, the next day, he passed. <laughs> and we were like, that's, and his age, it was cold comfort. It's like, you know, whatever, there's a million stories. We, we came in second to him and he didn't do it. He still hasn't done TV and, you know, but he was so intrigued by us that he called Tina Fey to see what she had going on. And it was very weird. Um, and I think we'd still be filming if it was Kevin Klein. I don't right. think he would be as facile. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's also this notion that you want to get, you want to get a fast pass, but you don't want to get that many passes because, you know, then eventually people are going to be like, well, this is like this is like the last avocado that people just squeezed until it was ripe, you know what I mean? Like, um, so I'm like, let's go for the sure thing, the person that 
we uh, the other person I had in mind for it comedically was David Hyde Pierce. And um, as we refer to him after that was David Hard Pass. And we're like, holy shit, how's this guy passing? So he just, he just, he just, he just passed you right away. It just like, not even, I don't even know if he read it. I don't think he wanted to come back. I don't think he wanted to play like a, a, a guy who was bisexual, allegedly. You know, I think whatever reason, he didn't even have time to read it. And it was like David Hard Pass. I'm like, shit. So it's like, okay, we're going to go to our ace in the hole. Alec Baldwin. And Alec Baldwin, who is not particularly, apparently, super easy to work with. I mean, he needs a handler. But I'm like, Alec Baldwin can do anything. He's funny. He's dramatic. And then they were like, he needs, Mr. Baldwin needs six weeks to consider it. And it's like, I think we film in six weeks. Like, we'll need to do, like, shoot live. And then uh, our casting people said, what about John Lithgow? And we're like, well, yeah, that's a great idea, but what, like... And also, at the time, the part was written for somebody who was, like, 45, and we kept edging up with Kevin Klein, who was, like, 68, 69, and then John was, like, a little older than that. And then John was doing The Crown, and John just read the script and became obsessed with us, and he called us, and he said, I'm here in England, I just shot for 10 hours, I can't stop thinking about the script. What would you, what have I done that would make you think I could do this? Like every single thing you've ever done. <laughs> and he just wanted to talk about the camera, the character, but more than that, he wanted to talk about Matt and me and how we met and what our relationship was like. And he said, and here's a man who could do anything he wants to. And he was more interested, honestly, in the process. And, you know, he loved the character, and he thought the world was very interesting and funny, and, you know, he, he had questions about the character uh, that he was only able to get after he raised his uh, pants uh, an inch and a half. He had his pants hemmed an inch and a half, and he clicked in the character. And I will never, ever question the great Sir John Lithgow, but that, to me, is very odd, but I'm not an actor, and I don't have all the awards he has. Right. But, um... You know, he was, he wanted to know, and I worked with him. Two of my, uh, my co-EPs were the guys who ran Third Rock from the Sun for him for six years, and they were his favorite people in the world. And, and he called them, and, and they just happened to give me a recommendation. And it was just, it was a love affair from the second we met him. And he was the hardest working guy. He was like, he never asked, like the first day, he goes, uh, Jeff, uh, John, let's see you on stage. I'm like, oh, God, already? And, like, I'm, you know, multi-camera, you don't go down the stage. And I'm like, oh, this is too hard. Like, just getting called to the stage was too hard. That's, that's my kind of, you know, <laughs> aversion to the stage. And he's like, John said, I want to get a haircut. I just want to let you okay at first. I'm like, holy cow, John Lithgow was asking me to okay his haircut. <laughs> and then he, he didn't, I didn't get a note on a single line. He was upset whenever he went up on a line, which was very, very rare. And he brought so much to the character, and he was so... I mean, at the top of the call sheet, when you have... It's like when I worked on uh, New Adventures of Old Christine with Julie Louis-Dreyfus, who is un also unbelievable. Um, you know, she sets the tone, and she's also an extraordinarily hardworking person. And, you know, he just sets the tone, and he was funny and charming and graceful and heartbreaking and everything you want. And it's... My, you know, my only regret about the first season was that I didn't get to spend, every time I went down there, I felt like I was just watching a play. I didn't, they're like, do you have any notes on this? I'm like, no, I want to see what he's going to do next. And my only regret is I didn't spend more time on stage with him. Well, it must be hard, you know, you know that you know, he's such a great, a pleasure to work with and he's so talented and you know you only have one season, which it's good that the news next season's a new case, but that must be hard too when you're sitting there going, "Man, you know, it, it, it would be so good to write more for Mr. Lithgow." Um, that is absolutely true, and and as a little uh, inside baseball um, uh, behind the scenes, our intention was we had a very difficult time saying goodbye to John. I have a hard time; I get easily attached to people and things, and, you know, when you write a character, and I love the character, and I don't want to give a spoiler alert to anybody who hasn't seen it, but it, the case ends. 
And, um, you know, we wanted to do it. And the way we sold him on it was that the case would be closed. And then he loved it so much. He's like, I would come back, but as a different character. And, and it kind of then was like, then we're just kind of doing like, I don't know, like kind of a, a weird, like, acting troupe where John's going to play a different character. So then we had the idea of what if he comes back and um, I had the idea I want to do a woman serial killer, allegedly, and or a female Robert Durst. And I said, what if he comes back in the last half of the season to date, you know, the, the Lavinia? And uh, we loved that idea. He loved the idea. And then, you know, he was doing back-to-back-to-back movies and he did a one-man show, you know, on Broadway. And he said it was just too much for him and, like, he said, let the character go. So we, we do... We have some flashbacks to the character in the season, and if you've seen the first episode, you saw that. Um, but his story is gone. Um, but he appears. He appears in, through a lot of references. Now, now you you get done the first season, and how long did it take for you to get the second season? Because as you said, you never you never been standalone. You got put next to the drama. You know they weren't they weren't giving you the best uh, support, as we should say. How long did it take? Uh, we them? should we should we should actually say they were giving us the worst support. Um, so this is a story that uh, I would eat up. What do we we have four hours? Is that what this is called? Four hours, yeah. Um, this is called trial and error radio. No. <laughs> that is the. Uh, it's a very very long story, and I've seen some things that a writer ain't supposed to see. Uh, we were, um, you know, we Mr. Miller and I moved heaven and earth to get this picked up. We were, uh, everybody at NBC loved the show. Um, we were not owned by NBC, uh, and the, the model changed, you know, and it's just that the business model changed, and there was no place for us on the schedule. They had the Olympics, and they had football, and we were basically dead up until the morning we weren't, and I never lost hope, and, and thankfully I had some back-channel communications with some people, um, at NBC, and I, we, I really, I willed this thing into a second season, and that's all. It was, it was pure grit. It was pure. It was Rudy. Like you know, it's like that was the second season. They're kind of like we only have ten episodes in the summer. If you'll take it, I'll like, I'll take it. I'll take it. Like put us in a little box inside another show. See, you know what? Um, I'm gonna say, you know what's hard now as as a TV uh, viewer is there are so many shows and so many different networks. You never know when stuff's going to happen. Like trial and error. I think Joanne, my girlfriend, saw a, a preview, or I think she had it set for the DVR, and then it automatically resets the next season. But it's just hard sometimes for the viewer because, you know, if you don't watch a lot of TV, you don't know if stuff's coming on again. No, and and you know, and again, so there's, there's a financial model. Also, we were asked to cut our budget by a third, and we were pushing. You know, we, you, you save every penny you can, and it's like, it, it was made to be impossible. I don't want to be dramatic, but the scene from Schindler's List, when they make the hinge and then say, how come you can't make hinges that fast, if you can make one hinge in 60 seconds? <laughs> this was worse than Schindler's List. The, this is worse than the Holocaust, I'll say it. Um, okay, now you, you'll handle those letters. Um, no, but it was like they cut our budget to a part where no one thing it could be done, and we... Through a series of miracles, we moved the show to Vancouver. We, I had to let go, unfortunately, a bunch of my writers. We moved into a medical supply building in Van Nuys off of the lot um, as a writer's room, um, you know, where people were carrying in and out blood and organs every day, and I'm not kidding. Um, but I, I truly believe that, and what NBC told me was, don't worry about the numbers, it's we, you know, it's all about the, the reviews and how the show is received. Now, this show this season with Kristen Chenoweth, who, by the way, also our first call, was, is so much better than last season. And it's, the second season of a show is always better than the first, I found. Um, it's easier to write. And this is no exception. This show is 78% better. Kristen is a miracle, and she is... Um, Easily up there with Julia in terms of actresses I've worked with, and up up there with John in terms of comedic instincts and 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 commitment, and it's and niceness and professionalism. I, I we're a family, and I I love her, and I love the cast, and it was just you know thank God we've gotten 
spectacular reviews, but here we are in the wasteland of, of summer. Now, you how, know, how so did you how did you get her? How did you get her? Because she's such an acclaimed actress, so talented, and it's something that you know. As again, you have to cut your budget. You know, you're working as an actor. You know, going into a show, you want to. I'm sure if you're going to do TV and be a regular, you want to be in a show that you know is going to get a good time slot. And how did you go about getting her? Was she a fan of the first season? Well, so. What had this all is like? I'm like honestly, I'm like my heart. I'm going through heart palpitations because this is like I'm living this every moment. So our first idea last year was, what if we had like someone like Glenn Close do it? And you know, we went down the list, and Glenn Close, who was not known for comedy, probably for good reasons, she passed. We went down. I had a conversation with Felicity Huffman. Uh, who wanted to do it but didn't want to move to Vancouver, Gina Davis. And then all of a sudden uh, our casting person said, what about Kristen Chenoweth? I was like, yes, but I love Kristen Chenoweth. And here again, inside, uh, behind the curtain here, the character of Carol Ann Keen, who's played charmingly and wonderfully and perfectly by Jamie Mays, was conceived for Kristen Chenoweth. Um, but Kristen, you know, has her life and wasn't available. So as soon as her name came up, it was just like one of these things. It's like, that's her. I know it. In the same way we're like, John is Larry Henderson. Kristen was Lavinia. We sent the script to Kristen. She calls me that afternoon and she's like, I'm in love. And we talked for an hour like schoolgirls about the show, about the part. And, and then she was actually told by her agent and manager not to talk to me because she's trying to negotiate. But, um, you know, she called me two days later, uh, star-crossed lovers, as you will, um, and she just loved it, and she said, I can't picture anybody else doing this. And I said, neither can, you, neither can I. And we were told, uh, finally, you know, by our casting people, she'll never do this role because it's so different than what she's done, and it's exactly the role she was built for. I mean, I mean you've never seen her like this. What she does in this show is remarkable and the turns it takes and the the I don't want to say evil but I will is it's delightful. No. So yes. No go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's just it's just she's remarkable and it's one of these things like the show, for better or for worse, is built on like miracles and and, and it's you know, my kingdom for a uh, and and by the way and every and I'd be able to buy a kingdom to get like a two and a half men or something that's just like a straight down the middle thing that people just love and it's easy to shoot and it's easy to pay for. And this is not that show. And, uh, you know, but it, people are committed to it in such a way and the directors and the editors and, and we get into, I remember I was on the show friends and we fought in a room over every little line. And that's what's like on this show without the audience. Well, you know, what I like about it, too, is it's, it's as I said, it's just funny. And, you know, we go now we're at a stage where sometimes, you know, it all started years ago with, like, when, like Home Improvement would have, like, the special episode where, you know, Tim may have cancer. Or, you know, he had all those little episodes that were like, wait a second, I want to watch comedy. This show, yeah. it's it's just comedy. And it's straightforward. Yeah. And it's, it's, the jokes are just there. And how did you learn to write that way? I mean, did you watch like Naked Gun and Airplane? Because it's sort oh, of, of it sort of got that kind of feel, which I of love. Course. And I, I think... mean, that, that's it, yes. In college, it was just all a matter of like insult comedy, and that's all we did, and that's all we watched was Back to School and Airplane and Top Secret. Um, you know, I know every word of Top Secret and all of those movies and, and listening to Roddy Dangerfield and, and all, of course, the airplane movies and, and Police Squad. And, and But, you know, and of course, you know, Kristen, like, Kristen God bless her, likened this to Mel Brooks and, and it's got a little bit of Monty Python in it. Those are all the things I grew up on. But for me, it's, it's, it's the, the thing about comedy and why I wanted to do the show was like you're always... In, in comedy, you're always looking for stakes, and the stakes are usually hurt feelings, or someone doesn't tell someone the truth, or at worst case scenario, a job, or I guess a cancer scare when it's not funny. But this is like life and death. I'm like, if you could make the stakes life and death in every single episode, it's like you've done half of the work. Now the jokes are easy. 
when I and, oh, go and, yes, go on. No, no, go ahead. I, I'm just finish what you're saying. No, and 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 then you and then you layer on top of that the true crime genre that has so many things that you can that are built in comedy even without meaning to be, and it's just you know you just do. You know, the, the whole key to this is the acting, the actors take it seriously, like it's a real documentary, like they're really solving a murder. And, you know, and we didn't, with, in season one, uh, John was the only person um, who knew whether or not his character did it, and we asked him if we wanted to know. And the same thing with season two with uh, Lavinia. You know, we asked Kristen, does she want to know whether or not she did it? And what did she say? Uh, yeah, she did. I mean, she, she also deferred to Mr. Lithgow and, you know, and John, you know, famously in the lore of the show, called her up and said, you have to do the show. Now, with the, with the world now we're in, with all the PC, and my background, I did stand-up comedy from 88 to 95 on the road, and it was a different time, and comedy's changed. You push you push the envelope with some of the language, like you know, if people if you watch the first episodes, Judge Camelotel, which to me is just hysterical, because when you see him look at the thing, he's like, "What am I going to say?" But the funny thing is, it's such an innocent thing, but it's so funny. Do have you heard any backlash? Because people seem to get insulted by everything these days. So. Um... It is, people are, we had, uh, spoiler alert, Jaleel White is on the show. Uh, he plays uh, Caroline Keene's rival for a district attorney. And he was watching some of the episodes, like, how do you do that? Like, what is, how does standards let you go on this? And, it's, and, and you know, it might just be like, kind of like uh, the frog in the bathwater that we keep heating it up. But um, we haven't really, we've gotten, the, the backlash we get, and by the way, I fight for every frame of pixelation. Uh, and every bleep, and you know, and those the funniest emails. I got an email in the finale from Standards, and it's so funny. And this is the finale. And uh, do you bleep out your thing? Like, what kind of what's the cursing thing on your show? You can say whatever you want. I mean, okay. So the Standards and Practices email for the finale are scene one. Um, please bleep and blur Caroline saying cocksucker. Scene two. Please, um, please bleep and blur Dwayne saying motherfucker. Scene 2A, please bleep and blur Dwayne saying motherfucker. Scene 3, Josh says uh, motherfucker. Please bleep and blur shit, fuck, piss. Like, all of it's blurred, bleep. But for me, that's the comedy of the show. Now, I will tell you another thing. Like, if you've seen all of last season, one of the, one of the, 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 the thing that they've had the problem with was not so much the, um, the studio had a problem with Judge Heisendike last year, um, and really because they didn't like name jokes. And, you know, if there's a question of comedy, I will not defer. If there's a question of, you know, taste or story, then I'll listen. But if there's a question of what I think is funny versus what the studio network feels funny, I won't defer to them on that. Um, you know, so like there was a scene last year, I had this idea, I wanted to have an entire scene bleeped out. <laughs> and um, if you haven't seen episode 10 of last year, it's, it's the longest bleep in history. It's like a, it's like a six minute bleeped out scene and it's delicious. And it goes on way too long. And I love that type of joke. And the network was like, it's just too long. And I said, I'm not changing a frame of it. And I said, like, I will add to it. And so, like, they uh, admire my stick to it and hiss on that stuff. But you have to, if you haven't, it's probably the funniest thing I've ever done. Uh, and this year, you know, we use the bleep button and bleep button and the, and the uh, pixelation um, very, very liberally. And, um, you know, and standards, we get away with it because it's bleep and you can't show anything. And, and to me, the resistance I got was the stuff like Judge Cameltoe, not the name. But the fact that we couldn't understand what he's saying. Okay. And they said, um, because what I found is really more important to networks. Uh, networks are like statisticians and they're like logicians. Like they have to, you have to be able to follow the case perfectly. And they're like, how do we know what he's saying? I said, it's in context. And they begged me to put subtitles in. I said, no, I've, I've seen that joke. 
They're like, yeah, but you could write silly things. I said, that's not my joke. I'm not doing a joke you've seen. Like, for me, the comedy is everybody understands him except for Josh. And they didn't get it. And they're like, well, will we ever hear him? And the truth is, you're going to see, I, you're going to, there's an origin story of how he lost his voice, uh, which we're going to show, I think, in tonight's episode. Okay. Well, you, see but that, that's it. See, that's what's funny, is that's, for me, what made it funny. I mean, the, the name is one thing, but when you can't hear his voice, I thought that was hysterical. Yeah. And then you're thinking, okay, but then everybody gets it. And if you, it, it scares me that someone cannot see that's the joke. You know, it scares me that someone's running a network that doesn't get, hey, that's where the funny is. Because to me, it's that kind of stuff, like you said, the six-minute beep scene. Those things are funny. It's like, I don't know, did you ever see uh, Team America, uh, the, the movie? Yeah, of course. Well, when he keeps vomiting, you know, you think it's going to yeah, stop after the third one because everyone says comedy, the rules are three, but it keeps going and going and going. And I think to so many people, that's what we find funny. Yes, and that's the same thing in the first episode, the second episode last week, when she sings. Right. And the song ends four times. And it's just like, it's too long. And I had a thing which we had to cut for time. Every episode comes in way too long. Um, and uh, where her doorbell is a minute and a half long. And they just wait for her doorbell to ring. And it seems like it's going to stop. It goes up for a minute and a half. And then Anne presses it again. And it's just like, oh, God. And it's just so, for me, that's the funniest thing in the world, is watching people wait for a door. Um, unfortunately, didn't make it in, but, you know, I, I, um, I, I, I thought that would have been a funny, uh, a really funny gag. And, and, and that's my favorite sense of humor, is, is things that, really things that the network won't find funny. Well, now, now, how did you come up with the idea for uh, Sherry Shepard's weird diseases, and how do you come up with them? Like, the one smoking, that's just so random, but it just cracks you up when you see her arm smoking. Um, I mean, how did you come up with that idea? Uh, yeah. So, it came up with it, really, um, so, um, I came up with it because my chiropractor um, has facial blindness, and... He's like, he didn't recognize me. I was like, and he was telling me about it. It's a real disorder. I was like, that is the craziest thing. He doesn't recognize his kid. He said, I can recognize people sometimes from behind. I was like, well, that's insulting. Um, but if I run into you at the supermarket, I'm not going to recognize you. You've never run to my wife. And I thought, what a great trait for somebody who works in a law office investigating murder. And then we thought, what are the, what are the silly things? And she, we gave her dyslexia. And the original title of the show was The Trail, because she wrote down The Trail on the board, said The Trial, and we loved it. And that was like the big, that, that was an applause moment in the pitch. And then Bob Greenblatt didn't like it, so we changed it. Um, and, um, but then every, everything, by the way, every case beat is real. Every case beat follows a real procedure. Every disorder that Anne has is real. Someone has it. Uh, so that's just basically we just we just look Google we have Google. Okay. <laughs> now is Matt still involved with it as much because I know he does Lethal Weapon and I'm sure you know it's a very heavy schedule. So Matt, God bless him, is the perfect partner in this. Um, Matt, Le Lethal Weapon was very very heavy, and last year we worked. Uh, the first season we worked on top of each other in terms of like he was in the bottom floor on the top floor and he would come up like during his breaks and sit in the room and I would pitch him stuff that to crack the room up and he would stare at me and I'd say can we have a conversation and I said to him I said there is you are my partner in this and I truly believe and know in my heart I would not have gotten the show picked up without Matt and I said um, there's nothing more dispiriting than someone coming in the room who hasn't been there and staring at someone pitching them a joke that cracked everybody up. <laughs> and I said, so you have to be here all the time or not at all? And he said, I love that. I will be here not at all. So Matt, I now that said, I use Matt for every production detail I needed, everything he's a... Because in, you know, single camera is all about production, and he's a genius with... with Strips and, and moving things and directors and and shuffling things and money and moving around things and and this year he is the sole reason 
that we got a season two pickup because he's like, let me call people in Vancouver, let me know, and 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 he found us stages, and it was just so. Matt is very involved. He's very involved now in terms of I tell him everything we're doing. He's very involved in the marketing of the show. He and I talk, you know, every other day. Uh, he is not involved in any of the writing, so, and has not been since the pilot. So now. Now, when will you find out if if you if it takes a while for a season three? I mean, what what do you and then would you sit there and if you already have an idea in your head, if you get picked up and hopefully you will, do you already have an idea of what the case may be? I know exactly what the case is. I woke up uh, panicking last week, and my wife's like, "What's wrong?" It's like I don't know what season four is. Uh, I know what season three is. I know the case. I know the characters. I know who I want to be in it. I know every beat. I know the parodies. Um, I need a pickup. And that's just what you heard is me throwing up blood onto the phone because that's my big uh, challenge is getting a season three pickup for a show that's buried. So, you know, that's what I'm doing as we speak. I'm working on marketing the show. See that's that's good. I mean, because it is a good show. Now, now, one of your first writing gigs was Friends, and that you were in the, on in the beginning of that. How did you get that job? You know, um, I don't like you get any job. Like we we um, you know we we wrote that my partner and I at the time uh, we wrote a spec script, a Seinfeld spec spec script that really got us every job we ever had for a certain point. Uh, that was really funny, and we met with Martin and David, and, um, you know, uh, I remember a joke that I said that Martin is like this very big feminist, and there was just a, um, there was a case at the time, and this is, you know, 20 years ago, where um, a woman uh, was, and this is really going to be funny, a woman was raped, and uh, like the cancer episode, and she was, um, she couldn't press charges because she, asked the, uh, the rapist to wear a condom. And that's what everyone was talking about. It's an interesting case. I said, it's not like she asked him to wear a ribbed condom. And everyone thought that was the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> we got the job. And, um, you know, we, in, in from the most distasteful places come uh, humor. Um, and, of course, I probably can't even say that joke this day. Um, but, you know, we hit it off really well with Martin and David. We love them. They are still my, probably my biggest influences in comedy and story structure and casting and everything. And, and we just, we just hit it off and, and they had the genius idea of hiring people who were going, who were in that phase of life. Now that was season, you started in season one or two? Uh, no, we start. Mike and I, my partner Mike Sykes, wrote the very first episode that wasn't the pilot, called "The One with the Thumb." So now, did you ever think that the show would become this? I mean, I know people when you're in your a writer, you you don't know what's going to hit it. I talk to actors all the time; they think they aren't they're going to hit. Did you ever think that this that show would become pop culture? I mean, huge. No, of course not. I would. First of all, two things. First of all, the show I really wanted to get on was a show called. Uh, Blue Sky, starring, starring like Corey Parker and some other girl that went 13 episodes. Um, that's a show I really wanted to get on, which we didn't. And then, um, second of all, we left after season two to make our own friends. So, no, there was no, no point in it. And, you know, we were just, we were dumb kids. And, and uh, um, we were, we were, we were, we were dumb kids and, and uh, we didn't, we didn't know. Now, now in the middle of your career, when I guess the middle, not too, you, you what started, uh, you created, I, created the Wild Thornberries. How did you get into animation after doing sitcom? Because back then it seemed sitcoms. I know you did Veronica's Closet, which was a very, very funny show. I'm guessing, how did you get into that genre after writing for sitcoms? So, um, you know, we had our, my first job was on a show called Hang with Mr. Cooper, and it was not a great situation and after that we wanted to not write for people anymore and uh so we read the script for duck man and it was starring jason alexander and we really thought this was gonna be the next simpsons and we loved the script we met these writers reno and osborne who to this day i think are the the best tv writers i've ever met 
and um, they ran Moonlighting, just geniuses. And we read their script, and it was poetry. I mean, it was just beautiful. It was really, I just remember still one line from it where they wrote, cut to, and then the next line was the chase, and they have a chase scene. And it was like, it was artful. The script was a work of art. And um, so Duckman was the trial and error of its time, and that they kind of, it was on, they moved it around. It was on USA Network. One time it started at 8.12 p.m., like, it's like, what the, you know, they did everything they could as an experiment. And there was a, um, we um, were given, in order, our option expired. And we're like, we can't work for free. And, you know, and they were still waiting for pickup. So Klasky Chupo said, look, I tell you what, we'll give you 1500 bucks. Here's two cells that we have. One was of uh, old people, and we created a show called Geezers. And the other one was this uh, adventurer, and we created a show called uh, Nigel Throneberry's uh, Animal Kingdom. And nothing happened, and our contract expired, and we went on to Friends, which so was, it was a good swap. And then, like a couple years after that, they said, you know, we want to develop uh, Nigel Throneberry's Animal Kingdom. And with you, um, and we hired this guy, Steve Papoon, and um, we would, you could write the script with him, and you will give you $2,500 an episode, or you can, if whatever it goes, or we'll give you 50 bucks an episode each, or $150 an episode, and you can do nothing, and we just, you just, we own your rights, and you get $150 an episode. So at the time, I think my partner and I were getting on each other's nerves. And like, do we want to write a pilot? This place thing's going to go nowhere. We'll take the fifty, the hundred and fifty dollars. It cut to it went two hundred fifty episodes, and um, the only thing we created was the name Thornberry, I think, or Thornberry rather. So that is not my show. I know it's on my IMDb page. I, if I could go back in time, one of the things I would do might stay on Friends longer and uh, would have uh, written the pilot to uh, the Wild Thornberry. Now, at what point in your career did you go from Jeffrey to Jeff? Because if, if on some of your friends it says written as Jeffrey Astrup, and now it's Jeff. Was there a certain point that did some other Jeffrey Astrup disappear, or what happened? Yeah, that's real. That's that's way too personal a question. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's. Being like a young a-hole, I guess, like, I noticed that my friend Greg Malins used to go like Gregory F. Malins. I think it's like you feel like you're, like when you're a kid, you know, 20-something years old, I feel like you think you're an author and, like, you want to really dignify what you're doing, even though it's oftentimes just telling jokes and, and eating bad food. And um, so, like, Jeffrey, I, I was probably Jeffrey Stephen Astroff at one point, Jeffrey F. Astroff. And then it was like, you know, nobody calls me Jeffrey in my life. Katie, my grandmother used to, that's it. And, and some people who don't know me well call me Jeffrey. But I think it was just to see, like, you have this, you, you feel like it's almost like John Hancock. Like, you're, you're signing the script. It's, like, majestic to see Jeffrey Astroff on a script. And, and I know a lot of people who do that. And, you know, you, I don't, they don't go by that, but like, it's just what they become known as. And then I don't even know, I, I guess I go by Jeff now. It's just, it's just cause I'm Jeff and because I've been doing this for 26 years and I don't want to type out Jeffrey and I'm, I'm, I've never been a Jeffrey, I'm always a Jeff. I'm going to ask you one more thing. You did, you wrote, uh, shit. My dad says you're a co-executive producer on that. Did you run into William Shatner a lot? And what was he like to work with? Um, okay, so William Shatner was, uh, it was a fantastic experience. Um, it was, um, you know, he still carries himself like he's the captain of the Enterprise. And, and he would never, Max Muchnick, who created the show, co-created the show, um, you know, Bill would, would read the script at the table reads. And it was like, he used to call it his moment on the Mike Douglas show. And he would read the script, never having seen it before, and just laugh hysterically and do commentary and say, like, I bet it was him who wrote that show. It was, and it was like, you always had to rein him in because he didn't, he, Bill had no sense of, Bill had no sense of the process at all, but he was just larger than life. And he also refused to be seen on script, on set, holding a script. So the, the network run-through would happen like two days in, 
and he would be off book, but not having memorized a single line. So he would just kind of ad lib and make things up. And the network, if you're ever there, it's awful. That's one of the reasons I'm so glad I do single camera. Thank you, God, for that. Is there's no network run through. And so the network is like looking for this script, looking for these lines. I remember telling Wendy Trilling, who was a CBS executive, I said, you're not going to find it in there. So they just put down their scripts and just watched Bill ad lib. Um, and then... Um, Afterwards, we find they're like you have to, you know, we you can't tell the, you know, they would time the episodes for a run through and it'd be 96 minutes of him stammering, <laughs> and um, you know, and so we told him, you know, uh, Bill, you know, the, he, he, it, we think maybe it would be better to carry the script with you, and he said it's disrespectful for people to see you on stage with a script, and we also said, well, it's it's a little bit disrespectful to not say any of the words. <laughs> um, but you know, he was, I worked with, I worked with, uh, I worked with Bill Shatner and I'll always have that. And, and, uh, personally it was, you know, he, I adored him and we've had some, we had some real conversations, but it's like, he's, he's, he is someone who's exactly who you think he is. That's funny. Well, you know, Hey man, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, the well, show's, the show's great. I'm going to tell you something, as I said, you know, and it's funny because tonight it's on at nine, I believe, and I got I'm on some, I'm doing some, I'm being interviewed on some radio show. So thank God for um, DVRs because DVR. you know, yes, please watch it. Don't let me know. Tweet about it. Publicize it. We need every little thing we can get. I will. Now you're on Twitter. What is your Twitter handle? Handle? Uh, I think it's Jeff Astroff. I'm not so. Tw I think it's Jeff Astroff. Uh, I think it's Jeff Astroff. Now, where did you that grow up? Where did you grow up? Because I, I, you, there's no, there's no real info on you. You're a hard person to research, except for IMDb. I'm really glad that that's the case. I grew up in a small town called Seaford, Long Island. Okay, All which right. is the east back of Long Island. Okay. Well, I want to thank you. So, people, please check out the show Trial and Error. Follow Jeff. Yes, on, on NBC tonight at 9 p.m. every Thursday, supposedly. Uh, or catch it on NBC.com or Hulu. And go to see his IMDb page and check him out and uh, check out all his old shows out. People follow me on uh, Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net, where I have close to close to 700 episodes, actually. Um, email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. And don't forget my other website. When I had my health problem a few years ago, go to stopthesalt.com. It's 120 low sodium recipes for one it's a cookbook it'll cost you 10 bucks you can get it at amazon but if you get it at stopthesalt.com i make more money and i'll sign it so anyway please check out in trial error i'm steve cooper i'm only as hip as my guest don't forget drink your water eat your vegetables take your vitamins and i'll talk to you guys next week